This year, we're celebrating 20 years of Glass Tire. That's 20 years of dedicated coverage of Texas art spaces and artists, 20 years of hard work by our editors and writers, and 20 years of showing the world all our state has to offer. Since we're a nonprofit, all of our work is made possible thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you'd like to donate to Glass Tire to keep our work going, you can become a sustaining donor or make a one-time gift at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Also, if you like our podcast, please consider subscribing to us and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's Art Dirt podcast. We do this every other week uh, where we talk about topical art topics, as we like to say. My name is Christina Reese. And I'm Brandon Zek. This week, uh, the title of this podcast is called The Power of One. And um, it's uh, we came up with, we thought about this because partly because of um, Clint Willauer, who died uh, very recently, who was an incredibly key person in the Houston art world, in the Houston art scene, and the development of the Houston and really the Texas art scene. We'll get into that in a minute. But as we've been talking about, you know, I was, you and I were on the phone last night and I said, you know, I remember I, I keep in mind a lot this words that Jeremy Strick, the director of the Nasher, said to me once. And that it's, as you're saying, it's really just kind of an art world adage, which is that, you know, it really only takes one person to make a huge difference in a community, in an art community or an art scene. And um, obviously it has to be a person with a, a certain amount of energy and vision. Um, but uh, Clint was kind of, he was one of those people for Houston. And we're looking around at Texas and we're looking around at, at different art communities, different art scenes in different cities over the years. And we're kind of, we're, we're just going to talk about what it means for a person or maybe a couple of people. We can say the power of one, we can say the power of two, the power of three, but generally what is it to have an individual or just one or two or three people max who really get things kicked off in a certain direction or change the direction of something uh, or introduce some sort of revelation or, um, or just a whole new um, movement for a certain place. And I feel like so many of these people are people that we're kind of um, looking back on. Like it's, it's so easy to be able to tell in retrospect uh, who these people are and what they did to do this for an art scene. And Christina, when you and I were talking last night about this topic, I was just kind of like, I don't know if I can, pick out anyone who's doing it right now. And I, I think that's, that's really part of it. It's like, you know, there's another adage that you don't know you're in the good times until you've left them or, you know, something to that extent. And it's, I think it's the same idea. You don't know how a scene is building or the impact that someone is truly having until, I mean, they're at least 10, 20, 30. I mean, in Clint's case, I feel like people really started to recognize his impact widely. Of course, people did it privately and everything, but still around probably 30 years into his career. Um, and he had a 50 year career, so it was still, you know, he still had time. Um, but the true impact isn't really felt until 
either the person is gone or their kind of role has been uh, phased out a little bit in the importance of everything. You know, one example of that is uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth. We'll, we'll come back and talk a little bit about Clint, but we were trying to think of someone in Dallas-Fort Worth that kind of had the same uh, impact in really building a community, and that someone we thought of was Hyde Fontenot, who... Uh, if you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, or maybe even if you're in Houston and across Texas, he's been, uh, he's shown in Houston. He's been in San Antonio recently, but when Hyde was in, uh, Dallas, he ran a place called Central Track and it was an artist residency. It was a community gathering space. It brought artists and residents in from elsewhere. I mean, Christina, you can talk better about it, but it really kind of made the hub of the Dallas art scene. What it was, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about these things, you're right. First of all, a lot of times these movers and shakers, these, these people who have almost a shamanistic kind of power or charisma or quality, they don't have an agenda. You know, Clint didn't have an agenda that he was going to, you know, single-handedly help or change the Houston art scene or the Texas art scene. Hyde didn't either in Dallas. They just throw their energy behind something they really, really believe in. And part of the thing with Hyde was he's so generous and he's so gracious and he's so warm. And it was uh, an attitude or a disposition that kind of trickled out into especially that kind of section of Dallas or that sort of Deep Ellum and the Cedars and Bishop Arts or whatever. Just anyone who wanted to do grassroots stuff, artist-run spaces, there was a generosity of spirit about Hyde that seemed to just kind of resonate. It had a ripple effect in Dallas for a while. Mm -hmm. And I will say that it lasted up until the fire marshal started shutting everything down. Um, and then Hyde was, um, was very um, kind of... Uh, he had a lot of obstacles at his job uh, set up by the administration. So ultimately he did leave and, and, he, and he wasn't happy to have to go. What we're talking about is almost a, it's an underground sort of felt thing. Like Hyde would never, I, I don't think that he would ever characterize himself as being one of these power of one people. Well, one of the weird things about his situation in Dallas, and it, it's weirdly comparable in a way to um, a, another kind of, power of one person, which was James Searles's impact on the Houston art scene in the, mm -hmm. in the seventies when he was, uh, seventies, eighties, when he was teaching at the university of Houston and when, um, he helped open and was running Lawndale Annex, which was like the off-site University of Houston art building, uh, of course, which eventually morphed into the Lawndale art center as it's known today. Um, but the weird thing with, Hyde and it's comparable to Searles is that it was attached to a university program. Like I mm. always forgot that central track in Dallas, that it wasn't just kind of its own standalone organization. Like it was attached to UTD and I feel like it's becoming rarer and rarer for, uh, these large universities, which have the money to be able to fund this type of thing. It's becoming rarer and rarer for them to just kind of give up the reins and provide the money, but allow people to just run it kind of how they want. And that's how Lawndale was. And that's a little bit of how Central Track was up until the very end. 
Yeah, I mean, Hyde definitely benefited from there not being a tremendous amount of oversight in terms of what he programmed there. But increasingly, as we know, the encroachment of the sort of the nanny state onto the arts, even in Texas, is a very real thing. And that happens at the academic level, too, and institutional levels, too. So when you have a university in charge of a satellite space like that, there's always going to be some chafing. You know, even Searles, you know, had that with UH. And but if you go back through, I mean, obviously we, we need to thank Pete Gershon again for Collision because it was it's such a good record of kind of who who had a lot of energy at a certain time and started to make things happen. But again, if you look at James Searles and John Alexander and uh, Jim Harithus and kind of some of their initiatives at the time, they were really just doing it because this was what they personally were interested in. This is what they wanted to see. This is um, what they had the resources to bring about. Um, did they know they were making history? Probably not. Um, maybe. I don't know. Sometimes I really question that. Sometimes I'll listen to a really, really great album and I'll think, did these, did this band, when they were in the studio, did they know they were making a brilliant landmark album? You know, do you know when you're doing something historically amazing? And I guess that's kind of one of the things we're saying. Most of the time, I think a lot of these people didn't. I was thinking about Vernon Fisher, who was teaching a class at UNT, and Vernon Fisher is a painter, he's an artist, and there's a heavy conceptual bent to his work, obviously, but he had these undergraduate students at UNT, which was where I went to school, and this is while I was in school, and I was not an art student, but a lot of my friends were. The way he talked about conceptual art um, inspired a group of students to start the Good Bad Art Collective, and I think the first guy who really kind of uh, got it going was a guy named Rod Northcutt, but he left pretty early. And then it was Martin Niles. And I got to say, Martin Niles was kind of one of these power of one people. I know other members of Good Bad would say, hey, what about us? Because there were a lot of really good artists in Good Bad. Yeah. But, um, but Martin was absolutely the one who threw his back into it and kept it organized and kept it on track, whether he was uh, loved or hated by members of Good Bad at different times. For the most part, you have to give him tremendous credit for his vision. And um, was it Vernon Fisher? Was it Martin Niles? It was mm -hmm. kind of both of them. But it was really Vernon Fisher just talking to these young, hungry students who had a lot of energy about some things that really, really were exciting to them. And he didn't know that they were going to start this thing. That was another kind of interesting power of one moment for Dallas-Fort Worth. And it really, in the 90s, it brought kind of the only major source of real conceptual art that was happening in Dallas-Fort Worth. You know, it makes sense, but it's worth kind of restating and re-acknowledging that so many of these people are involved in a university system. And I, I don't just mean like Hyde or, or James Searles um, in terms of like running a space, but just professors tend to be these kinds of people. Like, and I, I think it's part of the fact that in Texas, a lot of people that go through university systems end up staying here and the people who have been here for 20 or 30 years and studied with people like Vernon Fisher or studied with people like James Searles or Al Souza at the university of Houston, or, you know, th these kind of like mythical stories of the people who are considered like the fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and mothers of an art community are the people that are considered these power of one people just because they've like touched so many people and because their way of thinking has been so widespread that it's really just kind of 
seeded itself into the entire community. Again, like when you think about it, it just logically kind of makes sense. But I think you don't really realize how uh, how much their view of looking at the world and of thinking about art has permeated and helped build up that scene until you realize and can name off everyone that studied with them, which with people like Vernon, with people like even Rachel Hecker, Aaron Perizet now at this point at the University of Houston is quite numerous. Yeah. And a lot of these people, again, they're, they're not necessarily the showiest artists, you know, Stephen Leptisifon and, uh, at UTA up in, in the Dallas Fort Worth area is another one of these people who really influences his students and, and it inspires them to go off and do really interesting things. Um, you're right about that. Um, so that kind of that rub between institutions and then people just kind of in a free spirited way going out and doing things while things can be fraught, like between Hyde and UTD, they you're right. Some of the impetus does come from the professors, but a lot of the professors, I mean, really what we're talking about in the most basic way is that these are veteran artists who have careers who kind of know how the art world works and it's their job to teach their students what all this is, you know, I mean, they are the ones who are in the position to be mentors. Um, and so they do, they're doing their job and it's working. And so in that sense, we can't dismiss, you know, at all what the institution does for, for these kind of movements. We kind of, we kind of need to talk a little bit about Clint. Um, yeah, I do want to circle back and talk about Clint and, uh, we'll do that just after this quick message from one of this week's art dirt sponsors. Today's podcast is sponsored in part by Texas Talks Art, a new series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. Tune in every Tuesday at noon CST for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout 2021. All of the talks are free and open to the public, and you can see the full schedule and register for upcoming talks at texastalksart.org. And we're back. So, Christine, it's so funny. We, I, I think we both wanted to circle back to Clint right at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons I wanted to circle back to Clint is because he's such an interesting example of someone who takes a scene uh, that doesn't really, I mean, I don't want to be disparaging, but doesn't really have a lot going for it or a lot of eyes on it and turns it into something that people really pay attention to. And in this regard, I'm not thinking of his work that he did in Houston, but of everything that he did in his role as curator of the Galveston Arts Center. He was there for 25 years and he gave so many Texas artists, their first kind of big solo exhibition or their first institutional exhibition. Um, and he would put people from, you know, uh, people who were just young upstarts in group shows right next to people who were stalwarts of the scene at that time. And I mean, he made people drive down to Galveston to go see these shows and people from Houston weren't doing that before he was there because, you know, the Galveston Art Center, it's been around for a while at this point, but the Galveston art scene, it it's not generally something that people in Houston care about. It's a lot of beach art and it's, you know, I, I like walking through the galleries down there. They're nice spaces, but 
before Clint was down there and really doing stuff and putting on shows uh, by people whose names were kind of running through the community at the time, people from Houston didn't care. He went all over Texas. He found these great, great Texas artists. He, sh- he had so many shows and gave so many Texas artists their first solo institutional show, um, much more so than any other person uh, in the whole state, historically and uh, right up to today. So... People knew his name, um, even if they weren't in Galveston. You know, his generosity of spirit was really extraordinary, and you, you got to understand this guy didn't, he, it's not like he was rolling in the dough. He wasn't rich. He didn't come from money. He wasn't trying to enrich his uh, bank account in any way. He was doing all of this just out of passion for the work. You know, when I think about that institutional kind of power, I think about somebody, another kind of power of one thing, I think about um, Jack Lane at the DMA, as a director was just, he was an extraordinary director and the people who worked for him, I think really understood that his vision was an incredibly important thing for the Dallas museum of art and, and taking it from being at one level to another level. And sometimes it takes, you know, a little bit of collaboration, I'd say in terms of Dallas Fort Worth, we still talk about Jack Lane or I still wax nostalgic about Jack Lane. I realized that he didn't rub everyone the right way. Um, but uh, and then Howard Rachowski as a collector became kind of the name and the face in some ways of Dallas Fort Worth or North Texas big collecting. Um, we need these names. We need these figures in our imagination to get up in the morning and get on with our lives and with our days. I was thinking about San Antonio. I just keep throwing names out. There. I was thinking about Chuck Ramirez in San Antonio being such a, a key part of what sort of gave a shape and a sensibility to a contemporary art scene in that city, um, conceptual as well as material and, and also, um, political. I mean, you know, Chuck Ramirez may have been this friendly guy who fed a lot of people, a lot of dinners at his place, but he was also, a, he was a really savvy political artist. Yeah. And San Antonio has that legacy to go on. You know, he died young, but Chuck Ramirez, his spirit is still very, very heavy in that city, I feel like. You know, you're mentioning people from the Dallas Museum of Art. I I would be remiss to not mention people like Allison DeLima Green at the MFA, who has been the modern and contemporary curator for so long and overseen, I mean, such a building of a collection, um, Similarly, Mari Carmen Ramirez, I feel like, you know, maybe uh, Allison and Mari, they are cases uh, where we can kind of look back and realize that we're in the <laughs> we're in the good days while we're there because they've been active for so long that we're almost it's, they're almost kind of at the point that Clint was when we started to realize what the impact was that he was having. But I mean, Mari Carmen Ramirez in turning the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the new Kinder building that just opened this landmark destination for Latin American art. That's something that is going to transform Houston and will be a lasting impact on the city. Similarly, talking about artists that have really kind of galvanized a space in a community like Chuck Ramirez, Rick Lowe, who started Project Row Houses, or who was one of the founders, I should say, of Project Row Houses. Yeah, his name is the one that is so heavily associated with that incredibly important thing. And so in the 90s, that was that was concurrent too in terms of uh, of just kind of the contemporary art scene starting to explode in Houston. But the, you cannot you know overestimate the power of Project Row Houses. Kind of even in the imagination of the artists who live and work in Houston, it's incredibly important. 
And yeah, we think of Rick Lowe, that's kind of his living, breathing, ongoing art experiment to some degree. But there were a lot of other key artists who were involved in getting that off the ground. Uh, a lot of artists whose names we know and that we talk about a lot to this day. But I was thinking about Austin. I was thinking about OK Mountain, the group. Um, you know, there were two other collectives that sort of were around for a little while. One was called the Fresh Up Club and one was called Camp Fig. I'm so proud of myself for just remembering these things because <laughs> I was not in Austin at the time. But I was aware of OK Mountain and all the people who were associated with OK Mountain are artists. OK Mountain is sort of no more, but, you know, that was that was a thing that really kind of galvanized the idea of challenging, interesting, conceptual, contemporary art in the city of Austin. And um, really, really, it still resonates today. I think the spirit of that resonates today. And of course, that came out of, you know, students who were at UT Austin and wanted to start something really, really interesting. And they did. They absolutely did. I, I feel like we can't not acknowledge maybe one of the most obvious Texas or Texas adjacent power of one, which is Donald Judd and Marfa. <laughs> I, I didn't have him in the forefront of my mind for this conversation, honestly, until, you know, eight minutes ago, maybe. But I mean, talk about someone that turned a, a nowhere spot into an art community. You know, whatever you feel about Donald Judd, just that is kind of it's striking. I know he that was that's really something that's a one of a kind story. Uh, Donald Judd and Marfa, for sure. What a history and what a legacy. I was thinking, obviously, for Houston, I, I'm sure we'd get called out if we didn't name her or them. But Dominique Dimonil uh, in Houston was, you know, I mean, we could say that in some ways she sort of kicked off the whole thing. But um, with her her vision and her, again, her grace and her generosity and in, in her case, her money, um, sometimes it takes that. Um we made a list of people we thought we would talk about um, before we started this podcast. And at least to me, once we started this conversation, the people just started coming. Yeah, I've got a bunch of, I've got more names too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, I, I think that's a testament that, you know, even though we're not in a quote unquote major art scene, although we really are here in Texas, we have a lot of people who are making a really powerful impact and would make that sort of impact, you know, even if they were in Los Angeles or even if they were in New York or Berlin or wherever it's, it's, it's the work itself that really shines through and that can happen anywhere. And we're lucky that it's happening here. One of the key, the underlining kind of key components of, of every one of these people is that is there, is their generosity? The fact that they worked with other people, this wasn't just a them going it alone. You know, this was these were people who were master networkers who really got out there, collaborated. Um, you know, they harnessed the power of not just themselves, but other people who were willing and able to join them in their vision to make things happen. And um, you can't, you know, we say the power of one, but it's really the power of one. That's the engine. But the entire car is made up of a, a lot of people. And, um, and, and there's a lot of shared, um, credit that, that needs to happen with that. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. I mean, if anyone's listening to this and you've got, and you want to chime in with your, um, your inspiring power of one stories, uh, send us a note. 
but we're we're always looking. <laughs> this is our job. We're keeping an eye out for who the movers and shakers are and how and why. And, and it's usually not the kind of the big, shiny, ultra-ambitious people who are making a whole lot of noise and trying to bring a tremendous amount of attention to themselves. It's usually stuff that's going on. It's a little bit quieter. It's a little bit behind the scenes. And then it ends up having just an explosive and very exciting impact. So Yeah, I feel like we can't have enough of a disclosure on this. It's like there are so many people that were even in Clint's generation gallerists, people like Betty Moody, Frederica Hunter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, who, you know, worked in tandem with him. So take it all with a grain of salt and let that disclosure uh, sink in. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for us. We will be back in a couple of weeks. And um, until then, be safe, double mask, triple mask, if you will, and uh, go see some art. Go see some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Texas Talks Art, a new series of virtual 30-minute lunchtime conversations. The talks feature curators from Texas's leading cultural institutions and the most exciting artists from across the Lone Star State. Tune in every Tuesday at noon CST for these virtual talks, which are happening throughout the entire year of 2021. All of the talks are free and open to the public, And you can see the full schedule and register for upcoming talks at texastalksart.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2021.